Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. We've had a lot of guests speak about food and how it helps our health and what role it plays in our health. So let's find out more about food. Does it affect our health? Does it affect our brain? How? Can it help cure disease? Can it help sustain wellness? So today, we're going to get some of those answers. Catherine Reed is with us today. She's a biochemist and is the executive director, founder of Unblind My Mind. This is a nonprofit that educates on the links between the food we eat and the chronic illnesses we suffer. She has over 20 years' experience in biotechnology and molecular diagnostic research, training that would find her ideally suited to tackle her most challenging scientific endeavors, which includes food and our health. In 2006, her youngest child was diagnosed with autism. Through her research, Catherine determined that certain foods common in the Western diet were associated with her daughter's autistic behaviors. Seeing the profound effects of diet on the brain with many of her clients, she became a provocateur, questioning medical approaches and the food manufacturing practices relating to health. Most recently, she's been researching how food influences the microbial metabolism and its connection with health and disease. Her knowledge evolved into a treatment program, REID, which stands for Reduced Excitatory Inflammatory Diet, that provides missing links that many of us are searching for in managing or restoring our health. She has presented two TED Talks and numerous and spoke at numerous autism conferences around the country. She participated in health summits and has provided local lectures at schools, health events, and on Blind My Mind organized conference. She's also featured in the San Francisco Chronicle, Fox News, New York Daily News, Talk 910 AM Radio, KFIM AM 640 Radio, Coast to Coast with George Norrie, KSCO Radio, and various blogs and podcasts. So welcome, Catherine. It's quite an honor to have you on our show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, when we get, let's get started here. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, as you stated, uh, I'm a, a biochemist. I um, received my PhD here in uh, Santa Cruz and never wanted to leave the area. So I uh, loved California and, uh, you know, started off my journey in the uh, biotechnology world, um, really looking at, you know, protein pharmaceuticals and looking at um, protein drugs and how to stabilize protein. So a lot of my background is in uh, protein chemistry which I found myself to be uh, well-suited when I discovered that my youngest with autism was reacting to uh, a food processing of proteins that resulted in MSG. And we'll be talking about, you know, free glutamate and MSG and how that's, you know, increasing in our food supplies, you know, through the processing of foods. Um, so I found my education just ideally suited for solving this problem that helped uh, my youngest, um, manage health and really restore her and get her off the autism spectrum. So you actually cured her from autism? Um, you know, I don't like to use the word cured, but, you know, if, if she's, she's no longer symptomatic and, um, you know, she, we had her reevaluated, so she no longer um, is considered um, on the autism spectrum. But if I fed her a bunch of foods, um, I, I would imagine she would be right back where she was. And so it's, it's managing it, um, but we, it's almost like she has a severe sensitivity to something that causes her body to react. And by removing that, we're able to manage it, and she no longer presents herself um, on the autism spectrum. So tell me how you came to the belief that food was associated with her autism. Yeah, and it's, and it's kind of... Uh, interesting that, you know, having been in biochemistry and even, you know, having taught, you know, some nutrition courses in chemistry of nutrition when I was um, in grad school, 
never really thought about the biochemistry of food and what happens when we are digesting it or what's happening to the whole ecology or the microbiome when we consume foods. And um, really never dove into that until I had to. Um, But when my youngest started to really have severe issues with learning and behavior, um, lots of neurological um, dysfunction, you know, lack of sleep. Um, The only thing that I was able to control was the foods that I was putting into her body at that point while we were going through the evaluation processes and trying to figure out, you know, what accommodations she might, you know, need in order to even function and, you know, go get into a, a learning environment because she, at that point, was not able to get into a, a regular type of preschool. And so I started to uh, just start changing her foods. And there was, you know, lots of parents at that at time, you know, who wrote blogs, you know, saying when I removed gluten, um, gluten being the, the class of proteins found in wheat, and I removed, you know, casein, the uh, class of proteins found in milk, you know, a lot of parents would, you know, anecdotally report that they saw some improvements in their child that, that was diagnosed with autism. And I didn't understand the underlying mechanisms at that point, but, you know, feeling quite um, desperate and certainly something that was easy to start looking into whether or not she was having some reactions to foods, I started to, you know, eliminate some foods and then also start putting in um, a lot of nutrients into her diet because she really was a very picky eater at that point. Um, and so, we, you know, we discovered that removing gluten and casein, a class of proteins that's so common in the uh, American diet, you know, we saw some improvements. It wasn't, you know, getting her off the spectrum, but it was like, wow, you know, there's a little bit more imagination. She's a little bit more regulated with her sensory system, you know, meaning her, um, how she regulated, you know, hearing and seeing and touch, you know, was a little bit, a little bit more regulated, but still not, you know, neurotypical. Um, and that's what caused me to really start diving into the biochemistry of proteins in our food and what's happening with the manufacturing processes. Um, and when I looked at the, the just the most basic element of the classes of proteins of gluten and casein, I discovered on the um, primary amino acid structure, the amino acids are like the building blocks of proteins that glutamate makes up 25% of these proteins. And that's, that's an incredible lot, you know, amount. And so glutamate is a type of amino acid and, as, you know, when you look at glutamate and its properties as a neurotransmitter in the body, you know, you're like, I started to wonder if the processing of these foods was creating a lot of free glutamate, you know, which is analogous to monosodium glutamate or MSG, and that, that she might be reacting to that. Um, so I started doing some scientific, you know, uh, research, you know, looking into is there a connection between, you know, glutamate signaling and... Um, neurological issues, particularly autism, and I honestly felt like I hit the mother load. I mean, there's an incredible amount of scientific evidence indicating that many people, you know, um, have an issue with glutamate regulation, meaning they don't have a balanced glutamate signaling going on in their bodies um, that's creating a lot of neurological disorders, you know, including autism. And so, I okay, I have the scientific evidence here, so... I decided to put it into practice and say what would happen if I, you know, really went and dove into the manufacturing processes of foods and eliminated those that I thought were going to give her, you know, too much free glutamate and see what happens. And that's how I approached it. <laughs> so are you saying that your so your daughter is no longer in special education or no longer on the spectrum and is she functioning as a normal child at this time? Yes, yes. So she, um, you know, was in the mainstream school and, um, you know, functioning, you know, she was now considered neurotypical. She didn't qualify for any accommodations, um, you know, nothing with, I mean, because as a mother, I always felt like she could improve with focus, but I always felt that with all my children. (laughs) Um, And she didn't qualify for any accommodations um, for, for learning. And so she's able to learn in a regular classroom now and, you know, is, is doing fine. You know, ironically, she's now the more, most social of the entire family. I mean, she started out 
with, you know, just avoiding social interactions, really unable to communicate, um, not able to converse, you know, with a conversation, and now she's the, the most social of, all, of the whole family. So tell me more about these glutamates. Uh, what do they do in the body? Yeah, and, and so the glutamates, um, you know, and it really was eliminating the foods. I, I would have never have guessed the profound effect of foods on our body until I also went through the food journey with her because I wanted to, you know, because she wasn't able to really communicate with me like, Mom, I'm feeling this or I'm feeling that. So I thought the best way for me to understand what she might be going through is to also do some of the uh, the dietary changes on myself. Um, and honestly, you know, here I am a scientist, and I would have never believed the profound effects of, of food on the brain, on the entire health system, the intestinal tract. Um, but glutamate, you know, is a, like I said, a neurotransmitter, meaning that it is able to activate the nervous system, and it's responsible for activating over 40% of our entire nervous system. But even more than that, it is able to bind to various cell receptors called glutamate receptors. And these could be on non-nerve-like cells, like um, secreting insulin, so hormone regulation, or um, signaling for secretion of digestive enzymes. We have glutamate receptors all over our body, on our skin, on our heart, on our liver, um, on our eyes. And so this is a very common, ubiquitous way that um, the signaling is occurring from either one area in the body to another area of the body or from one cell to the other cell. And even now, microbes um, can also communicate with its host through glutamate. So there's an inc incredible um, signaling pathway that's occurring through glutamate. But the reason why we have so much in our food that's really not transparent to the consumer is it's, it's addicting. It's an underlying mechanism of addiction. And so by having foods that contain free glutamate, it makes our brains think the food tastes good. Um, but unfortunately, we've lost a lot of transparency with food labeling, so we're not really seeing a food package necessarily saying, you know, this contains, you know, X amount of MSG or free glutamate. Um, you really have to dive into the manufacturing processes to say, oh, well, they started off with this ingredient and then they, you know, did this manufacturing process and it ends up with this amount of uh, free glutamate or MSG. And not many people know that. Um, so it was a little bit of detective work on top of, you know, science work to kind of figure out, okay, wow, this is really controlling our sensory system. And a lot of the people that I work with, with trying to help them, you know, um, their recover health, many people have sensory issues. They're, you know, they're not able to really receive input from the environment and respond appropriately. So whether that's anxiety or depression, digestive issues, um, sensitive skin, you know, very hypersensitive to, you know, various noises, um, this is all part of our sensory system. And, you know, sensory dysregulation is really a modern disease. A lot of these neurological diseases are, are modern diseases. And I think that, you know, one uh, cause is the certainly the processing of foods um, resulting in an increased glutamate that is uh, not healthy for our whole neurological inflammatory system. Are you saying that glutamate, you know, gets on the receptors that where it doesn't belong and it blocks those receptors from functioning as they should? Yeah, so it actually activates them. So, you know, glutamate binds to these glutamate receptors and it can, you know, so there's, um, there's various types of glutamate receptors, but for example, it will open up an ion gate into the cell, allowing ions to flow into a cell. And we, you know, we're all about electrical currents sometimes activating and, you know, deactivating signals. And so the flow of ions, such as calcium, into a cell will activate the cell um, and then propagate that signal onto the, the next nearby, you know, neuron down, down the line. Um, so, yes, it, it actually, you know, will activate and cause a, a downstream reaction or effect. 
Um, Doesn't will, excess calcium in the cell kill it? I'm sorry? Doesn't excess calcium in the cell kill it? Yes, exactly. So that will cause, you know, what they call excitotoxic reaction that is initiated by glutamate binding to glutamate receptors. So yes, excess calcium in a cell will cause it to die. Um, and, you know, so that it's, it's very deadly. Um, you start to just start killing off these cells if you have excessive glutamate binding to the glutamate receptors. But you also mentioned diabetes. So are there glutamate receptors on the pancreas? that regulate insulin, meaning there'll be excess insulin leading to diabetes? Exactly. And I think very few people understand the connection between glutamate consumption and diabetes or insulin resistance, but this is a um, another, you know, regulator is glutamate, you know, binding to these receptors that results in the secretion of insulin. And it, it, it's very much linked to diabetes, obesity, insulin resistance. Um, in fact, you know, and, and scientists have known this for decades. I mean, the way they create obese rat models to look at obesity is they feed them um, MSG. They don't increase the calorie consumption of these rats. They feed them MSG to, get, to make obese rat models, and that's been used for decades. And that's how they study obesity and looking at the various drugs for diabetes or inflammation that's resulting from, you know, obesity. Um, so it's been a long-known mechanism, but it's not very commonly known among the, the public. Wow. And isn't it also a neuroexcitotoxin if you get excess glutamate that you start getting activating the microglial cells in the brain and possibly get... Uh, autoimmune reaction in the brain, which can lead to cognitive decline? Yes, and that's, and that's exactly, you know, I mean, a lot of the, uh, the glutamate industry will tout that, you know, glutamate in the food does not go directly into the brain. But we do receive the signals from gut to brain, and I think, you know, um, there's been a greater appreciation of the gut-brain connection um, recently, particularly as it involves the microbiome. Um, but you receive these signals through the brain, and if there's a release of glutamate from the um, cells in the brain, you start to activate the microglia, which is our, you know, our protector in our brain against invaders and, you know, helping with um, controlling, uh, you know, infections and, and such. And, yes, that's exactly it. The, the glutamate activates the microglia and as well as, you know, the um, glial cells in the intestinal tract, right? There's a direct connection there with the food and activating the glial cells. And then that, you know, that whole signal transmits from the gut to the brain. And we all know that about 80% of us at least have permeable intestines, which we call leaky gut. And that's associated with a permeable blood brain barrier, which is the barrier we want to keep all the nasties out of our brain. And so if most of us have a leaky gut, we probably have a permeable blood brain barrier. So maybe some of this glutamate can get into our brain in some form. Yes, and that, and that uh, you know, definitely has been, um, you know, was studied by John Olney, um, you know, actually back in the late 60s, he started looking at, you know, that it was causing brain lesions and that, you know, there are periods of time that our blood-brain barrier is weaker than others. You know, certainly, you know, when we're infants, it's not fully developed. When we're sick, when we are glucose-deprived or um, uh, fatigued, you know, that our blood-brain barrier is not always, you know, at its strongest and that there's periods of time where we can become, you know, more vulnerable to things that are in the blood going into the brain. Um, but absolutely, the more inflamed we are, the, the more our barriers are just not as strong, they're more permeable, and we're, we are more susceptible to environmental toxins. In which diseases uh, is glutamate a factor? <laughs> you know, um, I, I'm actually in the process of writing a book, and um, it, it is, you know, I mean, I like to hit the ones that are really, you know, really make a point there. And obviously the diabetes, the obesity, it's just a huge epidemic. But it's related to the entire inflammatory pathway. So if you think about how many people suffer from, you know, chronic inflammation, you know, what would they call the chronic disease, you know, we're, we're talking about probably two-thirds of Americans. Um, and so there's a huge, you know, link with um, glutamate being an immune inflammatory modulator. So it, if in balance, 
it's activating our nervous system and telling us to, you know, go do this movement or, you know, respond to our environment here. So that's the appropriate signaling of glutamate. But if it becomes an excessive signal, it actually triggers the inflammatory pathway. It's a stress response, and that's why it induces pain. You know, glutamate and pain are, you know, linked. Um, or glutamate signaling and pain are linked. Um, and inflammation also. So pain is obviously one type of inflammatory response. So if you think about that underlying mechanism with inflammation, it, it brings in a whole cascade of diseases and disorders. Um, so Alzheimer's, you know, in fact, they've used glutamate blocker drugs to try to figure out if they could help those with Alzheimer's. Um, but what you find with the whole glutamate blocker, you know, drug industry, which is, you know, multi-billion dollar industry, is that you get lots of side effects because we have so many glutamate receptors, it's difficult to manage, you know, taking a drug that's blocking, you know, the glutamate receptors. Um, and so you get lots of negative side effects. Um, you know, ketamine is a glutamate blocker drug used for, um, you know, masking pain so that people don't feel pain if they're undergoing surgery, you know. So it, and they, it, also it use also, it in, they also use it in depression. Exactly, because, you know, glutamate-based depression, there's an entire category with depression right now that, you know, they, they see that it's glutamate-based. So they're using glutamate blocker drugs for depression. So, yeah, so you can see that, you know, clearly the, the pharmaceutical industry is very um, well aware of all of the, you know, diseases and the mechanisms associated with glutamate signaling. But, you know, nobody's really addressing, well, what's the root cause? Why do we have this epidemic of all of these issues related to, you know, glutamate dysregulation? Um, and it, a lot of these are very much a modern, you know, sort of modern diseases. Now, in your work, you've also mentioned that glutamate is a factor in multiple sclerosis. We'll have talks on that. It's autism, Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease, schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive disorder, bipolar disorder, anxiety, sensory integration disorder, and Tourette's syndrome. Also, you mentioned it could play a role in Lyme. So it sounds like it can be involved in just about everything. Yes, yes. You know, and, and, you know, and that's where my fascination has been of, of, you know, recent is kind of looking at, you know, how, you know, if we have a, uh, an abundance of glutamate going on and glutamate signaling or glutamate metabolism in our gut, you know, how does that influence the microbes? Um, and, you know, many have learned how to survive in, you know, all sorts of different environments. Um, including, you know, a glutamate-rich environment. And the Borrelia bacteria, you know, needs to have a certain osmolality in order to be virulent. And that glutamate actually provides the perfect osmolality for it to become more virulent. And so there's an association here where we can have, you know, pathogens or microbes becoming more pathogenic um, in certain environments. And so some of them are more pathogenic in inflammatory um, environments or, you know, lower pH, acidic pH. Um, and so, you know, it becomes an, you know, interesting sort of, okay, how do we really see how, what the mechanisms of action of these microbes are for inducing their, uh, you know, pathogenic uh, effects? Now, many speakers have spoken about intestinal permeability being the root and the start where all diseases start. So is glutamate a factor in developing intestinal permeability? Yes, um, you know, because um, the glial cells in the, you know, the gut are, you know, very much out there trying to protect and, and regulate glutamate. So they will, you know, will um, absorb or intake, you know, uptake the glutamate or release glutamate if they need to signal, you know, certain neurons or activate neurons. Um, but if that becomes saturated, you know, the glial cells start to actually erode higher concentrations of glutamate, and the glial cells are actually protecting a lot of the endothelial, you know, intestinal layer. Um, and so you start to get this erosion of that intestinal wall the more inflammation there is. Um, we kind of break down our natural barriers that would be there to help protect from that erosion. Um, so, yes, glutamate, you know, one, it's changing the environment of the microbes, which be, could become, you know, um, you know, more problematic for that intestinal or that barrier, that protective barrier. 
and the inflammation creating lower pH in that sort of condition can also start to erode that layer. But yeah, you start to get erosion of all barriers, not just the um, on the intestinal wall, but cell wall. We talked about the blood-brain barrier. And these, you know, layers, our protective layers start to erode um, in high glutamate concentrations. So where's all this glutamate coming from? Is it in our food? Um, yeah, so, and, it, and it's, you know, much of it is in our food. So a lot of um, when I'm working with people and trying to restore health, you know, that's the first thing. Let's, let's get it out of our food, you know, so that we can, you know, try to help manage or balance this whole glutamate signaling. Now, if somebody has um, an infection of some sort, you know, where they have like, let's say, a viral infection, you know, that virus presence, that viral presence, you know, can also induce a bunch of inflammation that can, you know, contribute to our own host cell glutamate signaling, right? So there's another whole factor here that we're trying to manage with, you know, glutamate signaling coming from our own host cells because it's perceived to be under threat or under attack. Um, and so, you know, that's obviously another, you know, layer that can contribute to excessive glutamate signaling um, are, you know, various types of infections um, or any inflammation. So if, if somebody were to receive, a, you know, a, a physical injury, um, let's say to the brain, there, you know, there's a, a flood of glutamate and that's, you know, a very uh, deleterious sort of consequences that people need to manage that glutamate, you know, surge quickly before it becomes problematic where it is activating all the microglial and you have all these flood of um, inflammatory or, or cytokines that come rushing to, you know, the aid of, of the injury. Um, and that's what causes a lot of this brain swelling and the, um, the severe pain. So you can have increased glutamate signaling without it being associated with food at all, too, right? Because it, it is part of the pain response, the inflammatory response. Well, isn't it in MSG? And the industries don't seem to be able to spell very well because they seem to have about 50 different words for MSG that we might not even notice when we buy our food. Exactly. And that's, and that's why I, you know, um, decided to start the nonprofit, um, Unblind My Mind, to raise awareness, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> um, to, to do just that, raise awareness that, wow, it's not just about looking for foods that contain MSG. And that's where I started thinking, okay, well, let me do my the experiment here and we'll just remove foods that have MSG. And it wasn't that easy at all. Um, and in the American diet, I think we've become you know, very obsessed with, you know, making sure that we have enough protein in our diet, you know, and okay, we have to do this protein and the enrichment of proteins, particularly if they're processed proteins, contributes significantly to the whole glutamate load. And that's what I don't think most people realize. And so, you know, any, you know, fermentation or acid hydrolysis or, you know, fat removal of, you know, taking these foods and processing them, if they're protein rich, it's going to create a lot of free glutamate or, or MSG. And that's what I don't think a lot of people, you know, realize. Um, and so the, the natural flavors, when I was trying to figure out, okay, what is natural flavors? You know, when I'm, I kept seeing it all over these packages and I started questioning every single ingredient on a food label. And it's a very big black box as to what that is. Um, but there's, you know, 4,200 patents with putting free glutamate or MSG in that natural flavors ingredient label. And, and very few people know that. Um, but the, the other things are like kind of isolated soy protein or whey, you know, isolate, you know, these isolated processed proteins contribute to the free glutamate load significantly in our, in our food supply. So it sounds like any processed food, the processing is going to put a lot of glutamate in it. But what are some of the other names that you'll read on ingredients that signal that we're eating MSG or glutamate? Yeah, so, you know, the natural flavors was one of them that kind of, like, really irritated me because it was, it was just so prevalent. But um, many of these ingredients are made from the fermentation of, you know, um, of food. So, I mean, you even take, you know, as an example, you know, the, the, the making of cheese where you've got a protein-rich food that contains, you know, the casein, you know, um, class of proteins that already contains a lot of glutamate. And what they do with the cheese processing is they add these cultures that they have, you know, 
created in a laboratory to, you know, to produce just the right amount of glutamate to be aromatic, to, you know, have this addicting kind of properties, um, to have the taste. And so, you know, you really get these laboratory created foods that are, you know, made to be addicting, um, you know, and have certain textures, of course, and things like that. But when you talk about the fermentation of protein-rich foods, it creates a lot of free glutamate. Not only are the microbes producing the glutamate, but it's also breaking down the, the protein in the foods um, to its amino acids, which, you know, creates glutamate too. So you get a, a double whammy there. Well, let me go through some of, the, uh, some of the long list you have of the MSG in disguise. I mean, it would be autolyzed yeast, marley, bolt, broth, bullion, calcium caseinate, carogenin, citric acid, enzyme-modified products, fermented products, flavoring, pectin, plant protein extract, uh, etc. The list just goes on. And even uh, so, um, just seems like it never stops. Right. And so, you know, when I'm giving lectures, I'm like, okay, let's, let's teach you how to read, in, you know, ingredient labels. And if you go through something just like, you know, horrendous, it's got like 50 ingredients, like, a, you know, cheese pops or something, you know, you can sit there and spend a lot of time looking at reading all these ingredients and trying to sort out like, okay, what the heck is that? And, and how did they make that ingredient? You know, or you can say, okay, you know what, I can better protect myself if I just look for the organic head of cabbage and I'm not reading through all these labels trying to figure out what they did to process it. You know, of course, we're always questioning, you know, how is the food grown and what soils, um, you know, but we're going to be questioning that probably regardless <laughs> of what we're doing with our food. But, uh, yeah, the ingredient um, labeling is is not transparent. It's very challenging for consumers to really know what each ingredient means and what it contains. Other than processed food, what's some of the common sources of glutamate in our diet? So, um, you know, and like even a, like a, a tomato, which is, a, you know, a whole organic tomato, will contain some free glutamate. And that's oftentimes what, you know, the industry, um, the glutamate industry, which is a, a billion-dollar industry that keeps, you know, protecting the rights of putting glutamate in the food, they'll say, well, you know, um, it's in a tomato. So, of course, we can't label it or we're not going to be required to label it because it's in natural food. And, but there's an evolutionary, you know, reason why we have low levels of glutamate um, that we've evolved to be able to, you know, pick up these low levels of glutamate so that it's signaling the brain to say, okay, this is ripe and this is nutritious and this contains protein. So it's signaling the brain to, um, you, know, sig- you know, secrete the right enzymes for digestion and it's allowing the brain to know what's coming from a nutrient protein standpoint as, and it's ripe. Um, and so there's, a, there's a, an evolutionarily, you know, conserved reason why we have low levels of glutamate in our nutrient-rich whole foods. Um, it's when it's being, you know, used against us to, you know, serve as an addiction to these manufactured foods where, you know, we're no longer surviving for getting enough calories. We are not in that state, you know, anymore where we're wandering and trying to make sure that we can put on enough calories to survive. Um, and it, it's actually feeding us to obesity. It's like, okay, this tastes great. I'm going to eat more and I'm going to eat more and I'm going to eat more. Um, and so now in this day and age in the United States where we've got plenty of food, um, it doesn't serve us well. Well, it's one of the health foods that a lot of people are drinking is almond milk. Is it in almond milk? And is that a problem if it is? Um, and so because almond milk is, you know, removing some of the proteins there because it's removing that fiber labor or fiber layer, um, it, it's not as prevalent in almonds. There is a low level of glutamate in, you know, some, you know, walnuts and almonds, um, you know, but we're talking like, you know, uh, uh, 10, 20 milligrams, you know, compared to um, a Kentucky Fried Chicken meal, which can add, you know, five, seven grams in a given meal. So the order of magnitude is extremely different when you have, you know, a diet consisting of um, mostly processed foods. And, you know, studies indicate that the average American is consuming about, you know, 70 to 75 percent of their entire, you know, calorie intake from processed foods. And that's where it starts to build up to become excessive. And what's excessive to one individual may not be excessive to another individual. Um, You know, I would 
argue that, you know, most people eating processed foods is going to hit them or catch up to them at some point. They may not be feeling it today, but that, you know, there's likely uh, underlying inflammation that's starting to occur if they're eating and consuming excessive amounts of glutamate. Um, but the... Uh, what, you know, if we had an entirely whole food diet, you know, and we have almonds and we've got tomatoes and we've got, you know, all sorts of green vegetables and stuff, there's no problem with, you know, the glutamate um, amounts being excessive for, for in, in that diet. It's, it's about, really the, the processed foods. What about toothpaste or baby lotion or medications? Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's a really good point. So um, we've got glutamate receptors, for example, all over our skin. And, you know, so they, you know, if you look at a lot of the um, cosmetic products, they use hydrolyzed proteins and things like that that are, you know, tingling and activating our glutamate receptors on our skin. And um, it, it does. It builds this um, association with that product, you know, that smell and the glutamate, you know, receptor act- activation with that product. And so there's a, a, a certain amount of addiction going on with, you know, them being able to put these things into um, lotions and shampoos and um, any of these, you know, cosmetic products or um, body products. Um, And, you know, there's been studies that have shown that, yes, you know, people react to, you know, hydrolyzed wheat, you know, in um, lotions and it creates skin inflammation, which, you know, that's another barrier, right? So you start to erode that barrier and then you're more vulnerable to toxins getting into your body. Um, so that's, yeah, it's another, you know, barrier that's getting eroded with excessive amounts of, of glutamate in our products. Um, so, yeah, the, you know, baby products, you know, again, the um, some of the, yeah, the protein, the, the hydrolyzed protein products that, you know, it's in, yeah, it's in baby products, um, toothpaste. It's it's in in the form of flavorings, but that's exactly what they want to do. Is they want to activate those glutamate receptors right on the tongue. It creates a positive association with that toothpaste or any oral product, mouthwash, um, dental floss. Um, it's in quite a few of uh, the oral products, um, and you know, baby formula. It's in baby formula still. It's unbelievable. Um, and so, yeah, the list goes on in terms of, you know, medicines, over-the-counter medications um, that it's, it's in to, you know, kind of form that positive association. I'd like to, um, you know, emphasize some points that you've made in some of your talks. You mentioned that frying, sautéing, grilling, and caramelizing can release excess glutamate. You also mentioned homemade cheese from raw milk has got a lot less glutamate than the stuff we buy in the store. Also, you mentioned that vinegars tend to have glutamate, but apple cider has the least amount of glutamate, whereas you get the vinegars from cheap corn, wheat, glutamate is there in abundance. Correct? Correct. Correct. Um, yeah, so the vinegar, again, it's a, it's a fermentation process. So, you know, depending on what your starting material is, but if you're using wheat and rice, um, you're going to have a lot more, you know, glutamate at the end of that. And, you know, that fermentation process is going to pretty much exhaustion, meaning that, you know, the microbes are starting to die off by the time that it gets to this acetic acid or, or vinegar phase. Um, and apple cider vinegar, because it doesn't have a lot of protein, you know, will, will contain less glutamate at the end, but it still has the microbes, you know, secreting glutamate out of its own cellular metabolism. And again, these, you know, microbes are dying off. Um, so you're left with a lot of microbial waste product at the end with a vinegar. Now, you also mentioned something that used to be in a lot of almond milk, etc., called carrageenan. Well, what is that? Yeah, so carrageenan is um, isolated from, you know, seaweed, and, you know, it, 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 it's a compound that's actually used to um, study inflammation. So, like, if, if they're trying to find, you know, the, the perfect anti-inflammatory drug, you know, they want to look at, you know, an inflamed knee, for example, and they want to, they inject you know, a knee joint with, you know, carrageenan to induce inflammation so that they can, you know, study whatever their anti-inflammatory, you know, um, method might be. Um, So it's a known inflammatory, um, but it's 
isolated from seaweed. And seaweed, you know, is one of those natural foods that contains free glutamate. And, you know, not many people are going into the sea and just eating seaweed directly. You know, normally it's going through some sort of, you know, drying process that really concentrates that free glutamate content. But the carrageenan is, you know, taking it from seaweed, which ends up being, um, has glutamate as a contaminant. So, um, so, so carrageenan, um, it releases glutamate and contributes to this problem. Right. So it contains glutamate, you know, because it's isolated from seaweed. And yeah, and, and in itself, it's also, you know, inducing inflammation, which can trigger the whole glutamate signaling pathway. So it's a double whammy, which is why, you know, the reduced excitatory inflammatory kind of lifestyle, the read lifestyle that I advocate really has to look at addressing inflammation because that does link into this whole glutamate signaling pathway. And some of the studies indicate that the microbes in our gut might not even metabolize a carrageenan. Oh, yeah. I mean, because it's a, you know, it's a pretty big polymer. So, um, you know, it's probably not metabolizing it. Um, and I, I don't know specifically about how, you know, that's metabolized by the microbes. But, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it's, if it's not liking it. <laughs> and something interesting I found in some of your work, like one of the kinds of carrageenans is called E407, and the E stands for addictive. So they're labeling some of our, um, you know, additives to our food with the E meaning it's addictive? They know that? Um, so the, the, the E and like is a, a very common European thing, and I thought it was more of a numbering system where it's, you know, the, the number. I didn't, I didn't know that the E stands for addictive. It's more for additive. Um, oh, and, and so, I'm, I'm, I misread it. Okay. Uh, what about citric acid? Yeah, so citric acid is interesting. So, um, you know, I always thought citric acid was just like a squeeze of lemon and, you know, had you know, good faith in the food manufacturers when I saw, you know, citric acid because I just I had a beautiful image of a, a nice, plump, you know, lemon. Um, but citric acid is made from the fermentation of corn using aspergillus, which is a type of fungus. And, you know, they, it produces citric acid, but citric acid and glutamic acid are very closely chemically related. So when they're doing these pretty crude manufacturing or purification processes, glutamate is a contaminant in the citric acid. Um, and so, you know, and I always like to try to make, you know, make it clear that I'm not saying that citric acid is glutamic acid. I'm saying there's glutamate or glutamic acid as a contaminant in the citric acid process. But isn't also... Uh, the corn that goes into citric acid isn't most of it GMO? Exactly. Another whole thing, whether you have glyphosate, you know, being a contaminant or any, you know, GMO, you know, raw material ingredient. And that's a big issue when you have all these supplements with ascorbic acid or, you know, they're using fermentation processes and that fermentation requires some sort of fuel. And it's typically GMO corn, um, soy, you know, these things are, you know, have glyphosate as a contaminant. And, you know, glyphosate, um, is somewhat linked to the glutamate story too. Is that it, it hyperpolarizes the glutamate receptor to be remain active longer than if it's in the absence of glyphosate. So it is binding to a, a type of glutamate receptor, and with glutamate is activating it longer. So you do get these neurological issues um, in the whole glutamate signaling pathway with glyphosate, the uh, the Roundup chemical. Now, did you say something in your some of your work that protein powders? that sit in our cupboards for a long period of time might degrade when exposed to oxygen and end up with glutamate in it? Yeah, so the protein powders, um, you know, right off, fresh off the shelf can contain quite a bit of uh, free glutamate or MSG depending on what they're using for their starting protein and what they're doing with the processing. So these, you know, caseinates or, you know, protein isolates where they're, you know, they're hydrolyzing, they're, they're breaking up that protein um, into its, you know, smaller parts, that cr creates a lot of this excitotoxic free glutamate effect. So you can have as much as five grams being added to, you know, your drink with these protein powders. People think they're getting protein rich when, you know, there is absolutely no requirement for any manufacturer to have to put the quality of the protein, meaning, you know, how intact is that protein? If 
the protein supposedly in its native state has 400 amino acids, what is it after the processing? Is it still 400 amino acid or has it been break, broken up into, you know, three amino acids, you know? So there's no um, requirement to give us information about the quality of proteins um, at the end of the product. So some of the, you know, protein powders, I would imagine are trying to be good and keep these, you know, proteins intact. But once you isolate a protein, it's susceptible to oxidation. You know, the air, you know, starts to oxidize and it starts to degrade this protein, um, you know, creating, you know, more degraded and aggregated proteins that then could cause inflammation too um, and, you know, increasing the free glutamate content. So, you know, once you take and isolate a protein from its whole food, it's now more vulnerable. It doesn't have its barrier either. <laughs> um, and so, it, yeah, it becomes vulnerable to all sorts of, you know, uh, degradation uh, pathways. So how do we know which protein powders or medical foods to buy? I mean, I mean, it's kind of scary. We know they're processed in some way. How do we know which are good? Um, you know, so, you know, if somebody really wanted to trust um, a particular manufacturer, you know, they can sit there and, and ask them. I mean, I, you know, sometimes reading the patents, if, they, if the manufacturer has a patent or going to the manufacturer, I haven't found necessarily a, a great transparency with, you know, manufacturers and revealing everything that they're doing to it. Um, so the best way for a consumer to protect themselves if they don't want to, you know, sit there and have to drill every manufacturer um, for the food that's in their diet would be, you know, taking a protein um, from a whole food, you know, okay, you know, eating a whole almond and, you know, nuts and seeds and, you know, broccoli has, you know, protein, um, eating, you know, good sources of meat or legumes, you know, and getting your protein through whole foods rather than thinking that we need to enrich our diet with isolated proteins. What, a lot of, what about a lot of these medical foods? Because a lot of uh, health practitioners would say when you go through an elimination diet, you should get on a medical food. Would that have the same problem? Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, something like Insure, or, you know, I mean, they're putting a lot of these free amino acids directly, you know, into these um, products, you know, saying, okay, well, we need this level of amino acids. But it's, you know, it's always, it should be obtained through, you know, whole foods, which are giving you it from a whole protein. And then your body is digesting it and it's absorbing into the blood based on need, you know. So the way our transporters, our amino acid transporters are working is, okay, you know, I'm going to secrete this enzyme that's going to break apart this little peptide that's got two amino acids because I need, you know, that isoleucine and I'm going to break that apart and I'm going to allow it to then bind to this transporter and transport into um, the blood. And so, you know, we then are able to control, you know, how much amino acids are getting absorbed into the blood based on our need. Um, and that's how the signaling should work. You know, so if we flood ourselves with a bunch of free amino acids, you know, the transporters are getting flooded. You know, we've got signaling that's occurring that's aberrant. Um, and, you know, we get, you know, unintended consequences from that. Um, yeah, I honestly think that, you know, people who are trying to be on a, you know, medically, you know, <laughs> um, you know, pure diet, you know, would be kind of thinking about things from a, you know, okay, here's the whole foods and I'm going to, if they can't, you know, eat it because they can't chew, you know, it's coming from, you know, blended foods, you know, where they're putting it in a smoothie or um, they're consuming it from whole foods and start, start there, not from but what a, if they uh, have multiple What if they have multiple food sensitivities? Um, right. So it's identifying those food sensitivities and eliminating those, but still, you know, identifying what they could eat from a whole food approach. What's the effect so, of you know, gluten taking... and casein in, uh, with glutamate? I'm sorry, what was that? What's the effect of gluten and casein, you know, gluten in the bread and casein in our dairy products? Yeah, so because these proteins have a significant amount of glutamate as part of their protein structure, you know, any processing of these foods, which typically it's not consumed in our diet raw, except for like raw milk, um, you know, any of that processing, you know, with bread being fermented, you know, you're fermenting that gluten and you're, you're starting to break that up, or the cheese when it's fermented, you know, dairy, you, you start to create free glutamate the more these proteins are processed. Um, and this is why with cheese, you know, the most glutamate is coming from the more aged and fermented of the cheeses, the hard cheeses, the Parmesan has more glutamate than, for example, 
um, a mozzarella. You're, you're still going to have some glutamate in a mozzarella, but because it's a newer age cheese with less fermentation time um, and less aging, you have less glutamate. So it's it's clearly it's a, a function of processing that creates the free glutamate from the proteins. Okay, we've got like three minutes until we close. So how does this affect the, I mean, for obviously for people who have problems with glutamate, if that clears up and eliminating glutamate clears up a lot of their symptoms, that's the way to go. But what about, you know, the average person? What should he do and how careful should he be? And in the final three minutes, if you could just kind of summarize and let people know how to get a hold of you. Yeah, so I, I considered myself the average person when I went on this journey because, again, I was just trying to figure out what my daughter might, you know, experience when I was, you know, cutting out foods and putting some nutrient-rich foods in. And, you know, my experience was I got rid of all my pollen allergies. I had pollen allergies for 40 years of my, you know, life, not just pollen, just allergies in general. I used to get allergy shots as a kid. I was just one of those asthmatic, you know, allergy-ridden kids. Um, and I, I suffered for 40 years. As soon as I changed my diet and really got, you know, was mindful of where these glutamates were hiding, um, I got rid of my pollen allergies. Um, I didn't realize what brain fog was until I didn't have it. So I was suffering from brain fog and, and feeling like that was how I defined my normal. Um, and I had high, you know, some pressure in my sinuses that created these low-grade headaches frequently. And I didn't even understand to what extent and how frequent those headaches were until I was absent them. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is what it feels like to be able to breathe through my nose at night, to not have these low-grade headaches that I had for 40 years. So that's the average person. I think we define our normal based on what we are used to, but that you could potentially be reaching a better normal if you, you know, explored, you know, cleaning up the diet. And that's what I always encourage. When I work with people, there might be one family member that's really suffering. But why not have the whole family go on the journey and see what you could potentially, you know, um, benefit? You know, so I'll have, like, the dad mentioning that they no longer have eczema or the mom saying, okay, my digestive issues have been cleared up. So we define our normal based on what we're used to. But there might be a whole new no, new high-level normal. Um, and so that would be my take-home message is that it's, it's worth exploring for anybody because um, typically we can improve our, our health. Um, and if people want to get a hold of me, I can be contacted um, by going onto the website, unblindmymind.org, and there's a contact page, and um, people can, you know, either, you know, set up consultations with me, or there's plenty of podcast information and medias and recipes and things like that to help people get started on the the lifestyle journey. And it's really a lifestyle. Okay. We're not talking uh, about, you know... Uh, uh, Okay, okay. Uh, we're coming to a close, so I recommend people go to her site to learn more about uh, how to eliminate uh, the glutamate, which foods to eat, which of the organic foods you can eat, and which the, you know, and how to manage this. And you know, so do your research. Also, check with your provi- health providers and do a lot of do research. You can help yourself, help others, and be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.